Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the hill. We thank you for joining us on the podcast as always. Mark Elrich is the Montgomery County Executive, and he's kind of to join us uh, on the Hill. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Thanks for, for joining us. Obviously, as we sit here recording this this Sunday, uh, the D.C. area has been uh, focused squarely on the issue of a coronavirus. Uh, the state of Maryland now has three cases. Yeah. Uh, they've been identified uh, to individuals uh, from Montgomery County. Um, Obviously, this is a podcast. People are going to experience this at different times along this timeline. Right. But, but walk me through how you became aware of this and and what that process was like and what you prepared for leading up to it. Um, well, I mean, we, we've known about this. So the county's been preparing since January. Uh, we didn't wait. We didn't assume that we could deal with this when it arrived. So people were taking steps from the beginning to make sure that they could... Um, have the pieces in place um, before anything happened. And so we, I feel that we've been pretty well set up for it. I, I happened to be going to a meeting when I got a text and a call from one of the governor's aides to let me know um, what they had found. And that was the very first um, that I heard about it. Uh, yeah, and you know, when you talk about preparing and, you know, we have the time to yeah. discuss this now. What do you have to prepare? What, what do you do? What do you have to get ready? So partly it's, a, you know, thinking about how we explain this to people. I mean, you don't want to be scrambling around and all of a sudden figure out what are you going to tell people. So part of it has been making sure we're clear about the science of the medicine here because this really is a health issue. Mm -hmm. And you need to let people who know health talk about it. I did a press conference the other yeah. day. I did some open remarks. I turned it over completely to my health officer. Nobody needs to hear from me. They need to hear from the person who's an expert in health. And that's what we wanted to make sure that people know that we're putting out health information and uh, and that we're clear about what that is. And from your perspective, you know, since a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, are kind of attuned to government and how government works, uh, as a, a, a political and elected leader, is that how you see your role in all this, kind of being traffic cop a bit guiding people and letting the letting the players play the game while you kind of maybe direct people to the right folks to deal with particular issues of so i will say that um that the directing of people has been really pretty seamless i mean mm -hmm. i got a, a call from somebody in the state legislature telling me here's the person who's running this stuff for the state uh, we've just uh, put aside money for emergency supplies if you need supplies 
um, there's a lot of communication that's just happening the way it's supposed to happen. And I think that's because we had talked about what we would need to do, who we'd need to talk with. And frankly, the state was also prepared. I mean, uh, people have really been thinking about this because I don't think anybody was naive enough to think it wouldn't arrive here. Yeah, We spoke on the television program with Dr. Travis Gales, who's your county health officer, and he said he wasn't surprised that he expected uh, that it was going to at some point, you know, be here. And, you know, now not only Maryland, but D.C. and Virginia, yeah. as we've expected. Um, Montgomery County has, has a population of, of a lot of folks who, um, you know, work in the government. Uh, they travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, um, in, in, in some regards, <laughs> maybe maybe more citizens of the world, perhaps, than maybe some remote location somewhere else in in the country is is that something you need to factor in that this is a population that is international that is on the move that are people who are going to be in situations where they might you know encounter people from around the world look i i think there's no doubt that uh, the county because you know probably because of the industries we have yeah. you know heavily reliant in the bioscience or and large ties to Asia, for example, in that area. A lot of people travel to Europe. It's an easy trip from the East Coast. I mean, wherever it's appeared, it's logical to think they're Montgomery County residents who've been there, going there. One of the phenomena we've seen uh, through this is there's something different this time than even what we saw in West Nile or SARS. It's, you know, everybody has these phones. Everybody has social Mm -hmm. media information gets spread misinformation yes uh, gets gets spread H- how large of a factor how large of a concern is it for you all in government the you know the, the new factor of all of this dealing with an outbreak like this of social media um, we have to be more present than you traditionally would have been you know mm-hmm. you would have waited in the old days old days like 10 years ago yeah. for, <laughs> you know for, for a news story to break on some channel um, stories break as soon as somebody goes online and does a Facebook post or tweets something out. And so we have to be a lot more nimble than we used to be. We have to be in a position where if something's put out there, we just don't say, oh, that's just Facebook or that's just Twitter. Mm-hmm. We've got to be sure they're able to get information out uh, to either correct misinformation or to amplify factual information. So you can't just take the attitude of, well, I'm not going to give... <coughs> any more attention to that than it deserves you actually have to do get out there and say no that's not right yeah people think things are real if they hear them so that that's a change yeah um one of the things i've personally seen in the last couple of days is you go by costco or you go by any store and you go down either the the soap aisle or the uh disinfectant wipe aisle even I'll say it, mm. toilet paper selling out. Um, what what do you make of that, that um, people do seem to be kind of wanting to do something uh, and they're, you know, buying things in mass right now? So think of it as a snowstorm, only worse. Yeah. I mean, what happens to the stores when somebody tells you that we're going to get a Bread snow, and milk. snowflake tomorrow? Bread and milk. Bread, milk, yeah. and all kinds of supplies. And I think, you know, people are thinking, well, if I can't go out, because you know there's been you know people get quarantined the chinese are a good example 
um, am I going to be able to have it? And if I don't get it now, is somebody else going to get it? And then when I need it, is it not going to be there? And so I think you get a lot of, um, I, won't qu I won't say panic buying yet because they haven't seen that in the stores, but you certainly get a more aggressive approach to making sure people have what they think they're going to need. And it's gotten people's attention in a way that other health issues have not. You know, we spent a lot of time last year talking about the dangers of vaping. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about people's diets and, you know, the amount of sugars they take in and things like that. Those, you know, high cholesterol and heart attacks can kill you just yeah. the same. But something like this suddenly seems to have grabbed everybody, yeah. hold of everybody. Well, look, this is contagious as other yeah. things are not. I mean, yeah. if I don't eat properly, I'm the one that dies, yeah. right? And right. if... Uh, this is way different. You could do nothing more than have run into somebody, you know, who traveled and wind up with an exposure. And it, it's all things you have no control over and not even necessarily any knowledge of what risk you may be at. One of the things that's very important in a situation like this is that um, uh, transparency exists uh, not only between the government and the public, but from different arms of the government. So I, I want to ask you about that. It, it's no secret that at times... You know, you've clashed with the governor mm -hmm. over a whole uh, series of different issues, so which we'll get into maybe later. But um, that that doesn't seem to be the case here. Look, you all seem to be working pretty closely together on this. Yeah, this is a funny question because yeah. we actually work a lot with the governor's people on a variety of different issues in different departments. So. We have ongoing transportation projects with them. We've talked with them about economic development projects we're interested in. Now my housing staff has been up and met with his mm -hmm. secretary and working on housing things. So this is the norm. So the norm yeah. between our relationship with the governor is a working relationship with all of his departments. There's been no, we're not dealing with Montgomery County because you disagree with the governor kind of stuff. I'm not saying we're not talking to them. They're Republicans. We'll just sit this out. We have an ongoing working relationship. We disagree about some things. He's, he's perfectly blunt about what he has to say. Um, I'm capable of being equally blunt. Uh, but we have been, you know, I think really, um, I feel he's been responsible. I've been responsible in the sense that we've got governments to run. And our and political differences should not get in the way of running governments. Bluntness is a quality you you both seem to share in abundance, Possibly. whether or not you appreciate it in the other individuals. That, that's up to, that up to you. Um, finally, uh, on this issue, uh, on the coronavirus, um, obviously your health officer has been, been very, very involved in this. Um, there is always, though, a financial aspect uh, to this. Uh, the governor uh, last Friday got an additional $10 million into the budget for right. the Rainy Day Fund. Uh, do you have any sense of any additional expenditures on the county level that are going to be necessary to, to meet this response? I don't know what they're going to be, but I'm pretty sure there are going to be some. I know we're putting more money into um, public communications because we just simply, you know, with the normal run of things, uh, cannot keep track of or be as responsive as we want. So we're going to put more money into that because communication right now is probably the most important thing. You know, you got to remind people there is no cure. There is no vaccine. Peop most people get better. Uh, they get better by following the typical protocols you'd have for the flu. So our job is to keep people informed. Let's make sure that people have a perspective on this. And that has a cost, and we'll deal with it. Uh, we talked about this on the television program, but who has the final say 
on whether the schools are affected by this. We know Montgomery County Public Schools announced they do have contingency plan in the, the event that they do need to close schools. Yeah. Uh, will the superintendent, Jack Smith, make that decision, or will you have some role or some say well, in that in advising him? I'm pretty sure that he'll make the decision. I'm also pretty sure that he will talk with us, and he'll certainly be talking to the health officers, both at our level, but the state and the national. I mean, this is really when he makes that call. Whatever call he makes, it's got to be based in the science and the medicine of all this. And just like our calls have to be based in that. And so we'll all work together and talk about it. But then ultimately, at the end of the day, it's his school system. We're talking with Montgomery County Executive Mark Elrich here on the On the Hill podcast from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. The murder of Robert Wan, one of the most puzzling and gripping cases in the D.C. area. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I take a closer look at the mystery on Swan Street in a Fox 5 podcast available on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. This is the On the Hill podcast. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. Mark Elrich is the Montgomery County Executive, and he joins us on the podcast this time. Uh, executive, we had spent the first half of the podcast talking about coronavirus. want to transition to yeah. some other issues. Um, soul-crushing traffic is uh, a phrase that the governor of Maryland has used over and over and over again to describe what is a reality for a lot of folks trying to get to work in the Washington, D.C. area yeah. who have to drive uh, through areas of Montgomery County, specifically uh, I-270, Interstate 270, leading into the 495 Capitol Beltway. Um, the governor... Uh, over a year ago had a very ambitious plan to not only expand 270 but to also expand uh, the Baltimore-Washington Parkway which is located in uh, Prince George's County but also the entire Capitol Beltway including the Legion Bridge. That project has been scaled back. One of the reasons it's been scaled back is because officials in Montgomery County expressed concerns about what the governor originally had intended. So where are we now right now with the p3 plan to expand 270 over the over down and over the legion bridge so uh, i'll start by saying if you remember one of my first little tips with the governor was when they announced the plan and i would just gotten inaugurated i was there i said that if we're serious we'd start at the at the bridge that was not what they were doing. And was that the day at the Board of Public Utilities? Maybe? No, that was uh, that was a f- that was at a breakfast in okay. December right. of last year. Not last year, the year before, 2018. It was my first public, you know, speaking on anything. And uh, I said, if you're serious about this, you start at the American Legion Bridge because you don't start at the back of the backup. You start at the front of the backup, and then you see what that does, and you work your progressive, you work yourself progressively backwards to pull out what once that part's moving. What happens to the rest of the stream? Uh, about a month later, they said that they were going to start at the American Legion Bridge. Uh, so I think that was important, but it was our first, you know, in that moment, it was a moment of difference, and then we got to the same place. I think that um, the steps that have been taken now, uh, we're now working with the state. Uh, you know, these were, these affect our master plans. You know, we've been doing work on, you know, transportation for a long time. So it's not like we didn't know about any of this. This is a state road. We had proposed back when O'Malley was there, they came, they'd come forward with a 270 plan. We said um, we supported reversible lanes because if you think about it, traffic really is directional. You yeah. know, you you can look at the opposite direction at rush hour, and those cars are flying. Just to boil and, and to boil it down, you and I had had discussions yeah. of, about this too, and some of the stories that we had done on this was that. 
you know, if you look at, you know, just to use it as an example, clearly the road capacity is not the same. But if people are familiar with the Rock Creek Parkway in D.C., it goes south in the morning. It yeah. goes north yep. at night. So is that kind of what you envision? Yeah, we've got uh, we have this big um, directional traffic. We truly have a rush hour that is south in the morning and north in the evening. And so we had suggested from the very beginning, this is much, almost a decade ago, um, that they put in two reversible lanes. Mm -hmm. And the reversible lanes fit inside the profile of the road. You don't have to be doing anything majorly destructive. You would get the traffic benefits you want without spending more money than you need to. Uh, it's not like we had ever stood in the way of fixing 270. We just want to make sure that the solution you know, fits the problem sort of like the punishment fits the crime <laughs> and so we have to endure something but it should fit what the problem is and not be blown out beyond proportion punishment is a lot uh, a lot of people would probably describe sitting in that traffic yes. as well too so are you comfortable with where the county is at and where the state is at right now as far as moving forward on this section of 270 in american Legion bridge have we reached uh, agreement now you both because both sides seem to have the same goal yeah. But just different approaches again. Well, there. you know, so this is the irony. It's not yeah. all that much different. We, yeah. you know, we saw a possibility for lanes and reversibles on the western side of the beltway. Mm -hmm. So if you unplug the bridge, you also need to deal with the flows going into the bridge and, and then coming up to 70. So I think we kind of are talking the same language now. Mm -hmm. but we haven't got into the planning, actual planning process. Uh, we're very well of our master plans because if you think about it, we didn't have any massive development plan for the up part of the county. Our problem is going to be, and you see it on 270, yeah. is the flow of people going south. I got to deal with them when they get south. What we do need that's, that was missing from his proposal was a transit component. Then I go back to what they offered Amazon. When we were dealing with Amazon, this was heavily Mm -hmm. a transit-driven solution along with improvements to 270 and an interchange on the Beltway. I'm like, nothing's changed, and Amazon was going to put this giant amount of development into the county. So if that was a good solution then, we should be looking at similar things now. We need some transit relief. I've told people, you can do whatever you want on I-270, but when you get off of I-270, good luck on Wisconsin Avenue mm -hmm. or Georgia Avenue or Connecticut Avenue. So our, our argument has been you've got to support us on our transit solutions where there are no places to build roads so we can free up capacity for where people are going to come off these roads and want to actually arrive at a destination. 270 does not go through any central business districts. Not like a highway in other cities mm -hmm. where the highway runs through the downtown. Mm -hmm. You've got off-ramps on major streets. You've got off-ramps, but now you've got to take a several-mile drive into Bethesda mm -hmm. or into Silver Spring. We need solutions to deal with why those off-ramps are so backed up. One of the other issues uh, throughout your term uh, as county executive that you've um, had to deal with on a, on, a, on a regular basis is an issue that you know people probably a couple of years ago wouldn't have associated with a, with a, with a county uh, uh, executive having to deal with but that's immigration um there have been um instances where um the policy uh in montgomery county has run up against the policy that the trump administration uh, has taken as far as Im immigration enforcement and last summer you had signed an executive order um restricting or curtailing you could use your own language to describe it uh, ice officials federal officials from entering uh, county facilities uh, uh, restricting them to places where the public would go. 
Um, a lot of times you get questioned about this when something happens, when something yeah. explodes, where there's been a crime of somebody who's an undoc- undocumented individual. Um, w- give, give me your viewpoint on this, free of maybe any you know, uh, instance right now. Overall, how, how do you view this? Do you, do you believe in no controls on immigration whatsoever, some controls? Does the, does the county have a role in this? Does the federal government have a role in this? Well, the, the county doesn't have a role yeah. in it because anybody who got to Montgomery County or D.C. or Virginia or Baltimore, they didn't get here by crossing the border between where they were going and here. So they crossed another border and made their way across the country. And I will say in some cases, um, with the help of the agencies that let them cross the border. Because of catch and release? Because, well, yeah. not just the ca- what you call catch and release, yeah. um, just because they're relocating people with families. And so there's this whole system where people identify a family member in a place and you can go live. All that stuff is beyond our control. Yeah. I don't set any of that policy. But all that said, you know, this country has taken in immigrants over and over and over again. And what works best for us is taking an immigrant population, educating it and integrating it into American society as quickly as possible. So to me, schools, job training, all those things make these people as rapidly as possible, more like everybody else who's ever come here. And they come for the same reasons. My grandparents came here. My, you know, one came from, or two came from Lithuania, two more came from probably the Ukraine. They were fleeing pogroms and the crazy Russians then. Um, they come here for a better life. Um, I do feel, and I, I know I get some blowback on this, but America's foreign policy in Central America massively contributed to this. I mean, we supported some of the worst dictators and we trained the death squads. I mean, we kind of set the place on fire. And I've always felt like if you set a house on fire, you don't send people back into the burning house. When John Kelly was briefly in his stint as the Secretary of Homeland Security before he went to become a chief of staff, I actually attended a forum with him. One of the, I believe it's the only one he did. Uh, in his time there at George Washington University. It was run by Frank Salufu and the Homeland Security Policy Institute. And one of the things Secretary Kelly said at that point was that America needed to start paying attention, uh, not only politically, but economically to that area. Because Secretary Kelly's point was, if you address the security concerns, if you address the economic concerns of those people, especially in Central America, they will not uh, have reason to flee into this country. We don't hear much, if anything, though, about what the United States is doing to economically secure that region. And isn't that part of the problem it's, here? It's a huge part of the problem. And I'll, I'll make it broader. I mean, Europe has the same issue. Their former colonies, you know, the residents of their former colonies are now migrating to Europe. They have open um, borders and, in, in and, Europe and in a way that we don't have. Here. That's true. But yeah. but my point is the problem that was created. I mean, the first world vastly underdeveloped the third world, used them to extract resources, didn't help them develop what we would consider Western economies with production and all the normal things that go along with it, and left them in a really bad position in the global economy. And if you want people to stay in their countries and you've got a shiny object, 
a couple thousand miles away where you can get jobs and you have decent housing conditions and you don't live under brutal military dictatorships and you don't have that where you live, you're going to look abroad. We should be investing. We should be helping these people provide jobs there and they will stay if if there are jobs and they have the opportunity for the kind of life they're coming here for. All that's, all that's true. Um, but when we have an instance like what we had last summer where you had more than half a dozen men who were undocumented individuals that were here in the United States illegally accused of sexual assault. That's what winds up in the headlines. That's the first, that's the first headline of every story, an illegal immigrant accused of sexual assault. And then the question gets turned around to you. Well, County executive, how can, how can you support yeah. these policies when we have individuals who are accused of sexual assault who are in the country illegally. Well, the first thing I say is, a, a, we're not a sanctuary because we arrest these people. The only reason you know about them and have got pictures of them are because we arrested them. And we're not tolerating people preying on our population, and we are arresting them. And I'm more than happy to have them convicted. I would not lift a finger to intervene in the justice system. If they've committed a crime, then they need to be held accountable for the crime. But the only stories, I mean, if you look at abuse or any of these kinds of cases in Montgomery County or any place else in the region, most of the stuff is not committed by illegal immigrants. The choice of headlines, in my view, has been a certain approach to focusing on illegal immigration, and they call these cases out. You know, there's no headline that says, another American accused of child molesting. We got plenty of them. One of the critics actually has been um, the sheriff of Frederick County, yeah. your neighboring county, uh, Sheriff Chuck Jenkins. He, you know, directly called you out on, on, on another instances. He says uh, because his county is a 287G program that he works closely with ICE and he works closely with federal officials. And he believes that it's made his county safer. You've had some back and forth yeah. with the, the sheriff, <clears throat> but... Um, how do you take that when you're called out by someone in your neighboring county pointing a finger at your policies and saying you're not keeping your, your residents safe? Well, that sheriff's not even supported by the council up there. Um, so he's off on his own planet. He believes what he believes. Um, I'm not going to get into a back and forth. Of him. I don't think Frederick's any safer than Montgomery County is. Um, crime data doesn't show they're any safer than we are. We all have the same problems. I think that, you know, by and large, Montgomery County is a pretty safe place. And, you know, I, there is a, a graph of you know, immigration doesn't track with rising crime. And there are studies that show that immigrants are actually less likely to commit crimes than native populations. So I don't see the data. And again, I'd say if I wanted to deal with some of these problems better, I would be doubling down on my education and job training. Uh, well, finally on this, um, recently, um, some of these concerns flared up again because there was a 19 and a 20 year old who were accused of sexually assaulting 11 year old girls and uh, it came to light that these ni this 19 and this 20 year old were actually enrolled as students in Montgomery County Public School. Yeah. That led to a bit of an outcry for some folks and I'll, I'll be honest with you that when I heard the ages I didn't cover the story but when mm -hmm. I heard the ages I kind of leaned back in my chair and said what's a 19 year old and a 20 year old doing in doing in high school uh it turns out that that is the the law but there's been a there, there's been a lot of concern a, about this is in your view is it the age of these individuals 
or is it because once again we are talking about someone who is a undocumented illegal immigrant? I, I think it's because they're undocumented I mean the the age is silly because the argument that you would keep kids out of public school to get from getting an education because of their age doesn't take into account a host of different factors and, and one of the particular ones that has affected immigration is that the kids came over as say 14 15 or 16 year olds they start no, late. no english they start late yeah. and you volvieron los mcnugget buddies are back at mcdonald's y ahora tienen un nuevo look diseñado por el streetwear designer kerwin frost cada buddy tiene su propio vibe pero cuando el squad está completo se ven fire complete your buddy squad ordenando the kerwin frost box cada caja incluye un buddy tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias.